You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. So last, or not last week, but the week before last, I guess, we were talking about George Whitfield and we were talking about uh, the Wesleys a little bit in the beginning of the Methodist movement. And I wanted to pause there uh, because we got up into the 1700s and I want to go back now and talk about um, when, what, what's going on with the Baptists, the Anabaptists, what, whatever you want to call them at this point in time, um, what's going on with them uh, there was Baptists in England during this particular time, and we may talk about a few of them, but I'm not going to go into great detail there. Uh, but what about uh, Baptists that come to America? We know that when the pilgrims came over to the New World, um, they were coming for the purpose of religious freedom. And so they came, and they came over to uh, New, New England, to that area. Uh, they were searching for religious freedom. Now, these were not Baptists, although uh, some have suggested that they might have held uh, more uh, Baptistic views, uh, even though they didn't claim the title, but these would be more Puritan um, st- you know, style Christians, I guess. Uh, but they came over searching for religious freedom. But that does not mean uh, that there were not uh, Baptists or Anabaptists that did not come over, because there certainly were. And I've talked before about how different colonies took on uh, different state churches. Uh, for example, Massachusetts. Uh, became a Congregationalist state. Uh, And so uh, there would be Baptist preachers who would come into Massachusetts trying to preach what the Bible said, and it would cost them because Massachusetts said, no, 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 we only, you know, will allow congregational doctrine here. And if you're going to preach against that, then you need to leave, be banished, be imprisoned, whatever the case is, but you cannot preach against that. And there were other states that had similarly um, their own state religion. They were escaping state religion. They were escaping the Church of England or they were escaping what was going on in Switzerland as the, the clamp was coming down upon them. They were escaping Germany with the Lutherans, you know, clamping down upon them. And they were escaping state churches to have religious freedom. They came over here and said, okay, we're going to found our, our city here, and it is going to be based upon Puritan ideology, or it's going to be based upon Congregationalist ideology, or based upon any number of, you know, different ones. And... Uh, we're not going to allow anything else to be taught here, though, which was part of the problem of why they had to leave Europe in the first place, because governments and church were working hand in hand to quell anybody who said anything against them. So what about Baptists, though, in America? When did they come? There was a history book called A History of the Baptists in Maine, and Uh, The author Millet says this, There is no certainty that any of the Pilgrim Fathers were Baptists. Uh, However, it's also obvious that their influence was there. It's not unlikely that some of the Pilgrims who identified themselves as separatists, and remember that the dissident and separatists, those were English names that were given to folks who disagreed with the Church of England. They were called dissidents or separatists. 
They couldn't stay in the church, so they couldn't stay in Great Britain because they would be persecuted unless they kept silent. Uh, so if they wanted to continue to preach, then they had to leave England or be jailed. Um, some of them held Anabaptist beliefs probably. There's a name you probably are familiar with, Cotton Mather. Uh, Cotton Mather was a Congregationalist. Of course, this was the state church of Massachusetts at the time. He was in Massachusetts. <coughs> Excuse me. He said this, that many of the first settlers of Massachusetts were Baptists and that they were as holy and faithful and heavenly people as any, perhaps in the world. Now, some would say that the first Baptist church in America was started by Roger Williams in Rhode Island. Um, that would be, you know, some would say that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But let's talk about Roger Williams. There's a name that I've briefly mentioned before, uh, but you will hear quite often in connection with Baptists in America. He came to New England in 1631. He arrives in Boston. At that point, he was a, uh, a nonconformist, or he was a Puritan when he arrived in America. Uh, in England, he uh, met a man named Sam Howe, and he was mentored by this man. Sam Howe was a, a Baptist minister in London, um, but once he came to New England, he co-pastored a congregational church uh, in Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, but he had some doctrinal differences there with that church in Salem, Massachusetts, and was um, relieved of his position as co-pastor. Uh, but apparently he had some Anabaptist beliefs. Primarily, uh, he had a difference with the idea of religious, uh, religious freedom. Again, in Massachusetts, Congregationalism was the state church. There wasn't actually religious freedom. Um, you know, freedom of religion means you can worship God in whatever way you want to. Uh, it is the freedom to worship how you want. Now, not every way you want to is going to be biblical. And then there are going to be some ways you want to which are actually harmful, that are hurtful to other people. And, you know, obviously those things must be controlled. But uh, it went way beyond that uh, to, no, you cannot preach uh, against infant baptism. You cannot preach against this. And so he had an issue with... Um, the, with religious freedom, with uh, communion, ha as it was supposed to be done. He also held that the government could not give citizen title to any land unless it was first purchased from the Indians. Uh, and this was one thing that the Baptists you know, held on to. Uh, like, we're not going to go in and just take land from the Indians and claim it as our own and then resell it to other people. Uh, and then all of a sudden, somebody purchases the land, moves in, puts up stakes, and the Indians are like, wait, what? You can't just come in and take our land and claim it as your own. Uh, and so one of the things that Rhode Island, one of the things the Baptists did, one of the things that Roger Williams was influential in was pushing forward the cause that you purchase the land from the Indians. That, of course, brought its own problems uh, because the Indians, in many cases, did not understand the value of the land they had uh, and would be willing to accept small payment for large tracts of land, not understanding its value. Of course, I'm sure just like that happens today, that also must have happened in the past as well. But Roger Williams was also one of the forerunners in this. Of course, uh, this put him at odds with the Congregational Church. So he was dismissed from his church. He ended up uh, spending two years in Plymouth with Pastor Ralph Smith, uh, but he was invited to return back to his church in Salem. He did not stay there very long, though. Uh, he was eventually driven out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the middle of winter 
uh, because the magistrates of the town were angry with him uh, because he had printed a treatise, he had printed an essay on his strongly held beliefs in religious principles, and that put him at odds with not just the church, but the government, which again tied hand in hand at that particular time. So he's banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He goes and he lives among the Narragansett Indians um, in 1833. And it is while he's there, uh, he makes his way to Providence, Rhode Island. Now he's outside of you know, Massachusetts. He goes to Providence, Rhode Island, and he forms a small society there of 10 to 12 people uh, that followed him from that church in Salem. They moved with him because they agreed with him big, biblically, came with him, and according to Cotton Mather, which, you know, you may or may not disagree with, I mean, I disagree with him in several areas, but um, he said that that church came to nothing. Um, apparently, um, Roger Williams was not that great at organization uh, when it came to organization, organizing a church, uh, but he also had some other things that were going on as there, which I'll come to. But apparently the church did not come to, to anything, and I'm going to tell you why it did not come to anything at that particular time. So it's 1639, Williams, realizing that sprinkle baptism uh, or the baptism that the uh, Mennonites were using at that time, which was a pouring um, baptism where they would just pour water over you, were not uh, legitimate New Testament baptism. So he um, was baptized by a man named Ezekiel Holyman. Um, who was a layman there, and they baptized him, Roger Williams, and then Williams proceeded to baptize Holyman, and then about 10 others there to try to restore New Testament baptism uh, as it was supposed to be um, for that little group. However, a few months later, he began to doubt whether or not that was legitimate baptism. Why would he doubt that baptism by immersion was legitimate baptism? Um, because he believed that it could only be done by an apostle. And eventually he becomes what's known as a seeker. A seeker is somebody who does not believe that there are any true churches at that time, and so they are seeking for a true church. A true church is one that is organized under the authority of an apostle. This title of apostle is not one that is given anymore. Now, you'll find lots of people out there claiming the title of apostle. All you got to do is you know, get on YouTube and you'll find tons of people claiming to be apostle this or apostle that. Uh, and they have to very carefully you know, take their lineage. I got my apostleship from this apostle so-and-so, and they got their apostleship from this apostle so-and-so. And, -so, and uh, there are many even Baptist churches today which have a similar mindset concerning baptism that um, you can only be baptized by somebody who was baptized by somebody who was baptized by somebody um, of, a, of a very proper and specific succession. So he began to doubt his baptism. It really threw him off and he left to a certain extent that group of believers. Now, Following him comes a gentleman by the name of Thomas Olney. He reorganized that group of believers the very same year, and they met in private homes for the next 60 years. So um, Roger Williams often gets credited as starting the first Baptist church. However, he did not organize the first Baptist church in America at that particular time. Let's go back to, or let's go to... Um, 
well, before I do that, I want to read you a quote from Mr. James Bryce. Uh, Mr. James Bryce was an ambassador to the United States uh, from Great Britain, and he wrote this concerning Roger Williams. Now, Roger Williams, I'm, I don't intend to necessarily tear him down in any way. Listen to what um, James Bryce, an ambassador from Great Britain, said about him. Roger Williams was the founder of Rhode Island in a clearer and ampler sense than any other single man, scarcely excepting William Penn was the founder of any other American colony, for he gave, to, he gave it a set of principles. This is um, concerning Roger Williams. He gave Rhode Island a set of principles which, so far as the new world was concerned, was peculiarly his own. He and his community deserve to be honored by those who hold that, the one chief, that, that one of the chief services which the United States has rendered to the world consists in the example set thereof, in case I lost you so far in what I've said, the next phrase is the most important. What is he applauding him for? The complete disjunction of religious worship and belief from the machinery of civil government. So he was praising Rod, I keep getting his name wrong, Roger Williams, there we go. He is praising Roger Williams in the founding of uh, the Rhode Island colony for completely separating uh, church and state in the way it is meant to be separated. You know, today the idea of church separation of church and state often gets taken the wrong, most of the time, uh, gets taken the wrong way, meaning that um, the church should have no, there should be absolutely nothing about God or the Bible or anything spiritual or religious involved in state matters at all. That if you're a Christian, you have to set that side of yourself apart uh, in, if you're involved in any state matters. Uh, of course, it's not what the, the separation of church and state was meant to be at all. It was meant to keep the state from controlling the church in any way, from using its power, its influence, its money, its laws, from controlling the church in any way. That was the purpose of the separation of church and state. Uh, while the separation of church and state was not encoded uh, in the Constitution, but that is the, the purpose of it. And so Roger Williams, you know, Yes, they're already in the new world. There's already these colonies over there, but there's not really religious freedom still at this point. And he is really spearheading this idea there in Rhode Island. But I want to talk about a different church. The First Baptist Church of Newport, Rhode Island. Um, the First Baptist Church of Newport, Rhode Island. The founder of this church was a man by the name of John Clark. He was born in England in 1609. He was baptized and ordained at a Baptist church in London, England, in 1637, Clark, he was a doctor. He came to Massachusetts to preach the gospel. Again, Massachusetts, uh, but he was a Baptist, which means he did not uh, succeed in his preaching there in Massachusetts because he was imprisoned because he preached, quote-unquote, purer doctrines than those of the state church, which was congregational at that time, and he was violating the law. So uh, after being imprisoned, he fled persecution and arrived in Rhode Island in 1638, okay, timeline-wise, 1638. He begins a church, organizes a, a group of people there in 1638 in Rhode Island in the city of Newport. Uh, with the help of Roger Williams, actually, he was able to purchase some land uh, from the Indians, and he set up a meeting place. And from its very beginning, Clark's church and his church government was better organized, and it had more people uh, coming to that church than Roger Williams' small group. 1638, um, John Clark organizes and sets up a church. 1639, a year later, is when Roger Williams uh, does so as well. 
Uh, so technically, you know, we have physical evidence um, on Clark's tombstone up there in, at the Newport Church. It says when he began the church. There was also a, let's see, a, a parliamentary uh, act concerning the beginning of that church because a uh, hundred years after the founding of the church, they had a special service that was written about. Uh, and so that church uh, was the very first one in the, America, in the Americas. Uh, and it continued until this present time. Uh, the church, I believe, is still there. Uh, interesting thought. I have my doubts that it is of similar beliefs <laughs> uh, as it was then or as strong or pure as it was then. But uh, that often has a tendency to happen, especially in New England. But um, it still is there, I, I believe. And so seems to me then that John Clark and his First Baptist Church of Newport, Rhode Island was the first church in the Americas. The Baptists were present in England. They were considered separatists. They were considered dissidents, but they still existed there. Uh, many of them were chased out and from England. Remember, many of them went to Switzerland uh, trying to find religious freedom in Switzerland, but they didn't find it wholly, completely there. The Anabaptists still had to leave Switzerland and Great Britain and other places and made their way over to the New World and the Baptists came to um, America. I want to move a little forward, a little more forward in time. Um, in 1644, uh, the churches of Providence and the churches of Newport, both of which I've spoken of, Roger Williams Church and John's Clark Church, John Clark's Church, already been founded. The governments of both Massachusetts and Connecticut passed laws. Think about this. Okay, this is the well, what would become the United States of America, what would become the bastion of religious freedom. Now you have Massachusetts and Connecticut passing laws. Listen to the laws they passed. This is after Rhode Island has kind of flourished and it's gotten a reputation. Listen to the laws that the, the states around them start to pass. It says, no persons except members of the established churches should be admitted freemen within their jurisdiction. So in Massachusetts and in Connecticut, unless you are a member of the state church, then you could not be a citizen, a free man. You could not have uh, own land. You could not vote. Interesting. In fact, Massachusetts was so scared that the Anabaptist principles were going to spread to their colony, they passed another law in November of 1644 saying this. If any person or persons should within their colony openly condemn or oppose infant baptism or seduce others from the approbation thereof or should leave the meeting house purposefully at the performance of the ordinance, every such person or persons shall be sentenced to banishment. So if you said anything against infant baptism or tried to convince somebody else to be against infant baptism or got up and walked out of the building when they were preparing to baptize an infant, then you would be subject to banishment from the state or from the colony. You wouldn't be able to stay in Massachusetts. Think about that. Was it really the bastion of religious freedom then? No. In 1651, uh, there were certain events that caused John Clark, along with Roger Williams, to go over to England. Uh, they wanted to get a charter that would secure the existence of Rhode Island as a colony. So um, they went over there 
Uh, at some point, Williams came back to Rhode Island. Clark stayed in England, and then he came back in 1663 after he got a charter from Charles II. And it's extremely significant because Charles was, in a sense, taking a gamble on this colony of Rhode Island. Think about it. Things were not run willy-nilly back then. It wasn't you do as you want, you believe as you want, you worship as you want. There were practically no places in the world that allowed you to just worship as you wanted. Everywhere you went, even if you came to the new world seeking religious freedom, those who were in charge still controlled the religion of that area. So this was an experiment allowing Rhode Island to have their own charter, which we'll read in a little bit, uh, a piece of it that, well, actually I'll read it now. It says this, that no one in this colony shall henceforth be molested, punished, disturbed, or brought to trial on account of any difference of opinion in the matter of religion. This has not been done. For Charles II, the leader of the Church of England, over in England, to allow Rhode Island, one of their colonies, to have a charter allowing it to be freely religious, this was dangerous. It goes on to say, But each one at the same time shall be able freely and lawfully to hold his own judgment and his own conscience in what concerns religious questions, so long as he does not violate peace and quietness and does not abuse this liberty in a licentious or profane manner. To England, to the, to the king, it meant that the, the governmental support of the ch state church might become unnecessary if this worked. You know, in one sense, remember I've talked about as the church grew bigger and more powerful, it became necessary, well, when the church was weak, it was necessary to have state protection to keep them in, safe and protected. But as they grew powerful and more wealthy, it became necessary for the church uh, to have their hands in the state to maintain that existence. And so there was this uh, corrupt symbiotic relationship between the state and the church. And if now there's going to be a new colony which is going to thrive which is going to provide capital and tax for the government, it's going to render the state church unnecessary. And again, this is a, a dangerous experiment. Now, we know it was successful. Religious freedom eventually won the day, and it began here in America. Uh, however, persecution did not end. Uh, that, that colony of Rhode Island was viewed as a a group of vagabonds, a group of uh, mixed bunches of, of nobodies uh, with all sorts of varying weird and strange beliefs. And this was uh, the way it was viewed from the outside, as disorganized, uh, as a bunch of strange you know, people. Uh, and you could look at the United States today and, and view that in the same way, because you look in the United States and you just find every religion, people worshiping Plants, people worshiping animals, people worshiping themselves, people worshiping nothing, people worshiping technology. You can find people who are wholly dedicated themselves to just about anything under the sun in the United States. You find every race, you find every tongue, you find all of these things, every religion in the United States. And so you could look at the U.S. and say there's not one single identity in the United States. You can't look at the U.S. and say that we're a Christian nation. Now, we may be largely Christian, but you look at the United States and, and the, the rest of the world might say, well, they're not one specific color and they're not one specific language and they're not one specific religion and you can't put an identity on America like that. That's how it's supposed to be in America, by the way. When you come to America, you're supposed to, in one way, in one sense, lose your identity. That's what a melting pot is. 
you put various things of various origins into the melting pot and those things melt and they lose their identity to become a part of the whole. If you keep your identity, you don't become a part of the whole. And there's a lot of people that are doing that thing as well and that come but don't want to be a part of the United States, don't want any part of the culture or the language or anything, uh, but want to maintain their own set-apart culture uh, and they refuse to be a part of the melting pot. So there was still uh, persecution. In 1695, Cotton Mather said this, that Rhode Island was occupied by antinomians, uh, which is a fancy word meaning you know, they refused to take a name, uh, nameless groups of religious people, antinomians, Anabaptists, Quakers, uh, ranters, and everything but Roman Catholics and Christians. So he's, here's this uh, congregationalist you know, leader there in Massachusetts saying, Man, they just got everything up there. A bunch of people that don't even have names for what they worship or, or, or what their religion is. They have everything there but Catholics and Christians. He says, and if any man had lost his religion, he might find it again in this general muster of opinionists. Sounds like America, right? Sounds like the American dream. You come and you can feel free to worship as you please. An official from North Carolina wrote the Chief Justice in 1696 about Providence, Rhode Island, and said this, "'Tis necessary that that place be taken care of and put under regular government, the present pretenders to govern, to govern being either Quakers or Anabaptists." Uh, they didn't like that they had religious freedom. They didn't like how Rhode Island was being run. There was a letter addressed to the inhabitants of Providence by Presbyterians in Massachusetts. This is actually kind of funny. Uh, so the Presbyterians in Massachusetts, they looked over at Rhode Island and they thought, man, it's so sad, you know, the state of religion over in Rhode Island. We need to send some missionaries over there to help correct all of these Baptist or Anabaptist problems. You know, all of their bad doctrines, we need to send some missionaries over there to correct them. So they wrote a letter uh, and sent it to, um, to Providence, Rhode Island in October of 1721. Uh, basically saying, can we, if we send some missionaries to help train you better in the Bible and its doctrines, would you receive them? This was the response that came back from the Baptists in Rhode Island to them. We admire, your, we admire at your request or that you should imagine or surmise that we should consent to either inasmuch as we know that your ministers, for the most part, were never set up by God. Ooh, attacking their church hierarchy. Uh, that they, you know, that this uh, presbytery, uh, that they are um, being placed by one another, that they are being, uh, there's this hierarchy set up above the churches, which isn't biblical. He says, but have consecrated themselves and have changed his ordinances. And for their greediness of filthy lucre, some you have put to death. Others you have banished upon pain of death. Others you have barbarously scourged. Others you have imprisoned and seized upon their estates. And at this very time, you are rending in pieces and ruining people with innumerable charges. And you, like wolves, pursue. And whenever you find them within your reach, you seize their estates. And all this is done to make room for your ministers to live in idleness, pride, and fullness of bread. Shall we countenance such ministers? Nay, verily, these are not the marks of Christ's ministry, but are a papal... That, was, that hurt a papal spot. You're acting just like the Roman Catholics that you protested against in your Protestant Reformation. 
that is abhorred by all pious Protestants. That letter was dripping <laughs> with, I don't want to say sarcasm necessarily, but it was, it was dripping with uh, pointedness. <laughs> I can put it that way. Uh, they, were, they said, you want to send your ministers over here to teach us uh, how we ought to worship and teach us what the Bible says? When your ministers aren't even appointed by God and you've taken all of the, the ordinances and you've misused them for your own greediness, you hurt, you damage, you chase down, and you kill people who disagree with you, um, no, you are a whole lot more like uh, the, um, the, Catholic, you know, the Roman Catholic Church that you have tried to flee from. You've become just like them. I don't think we'll be letting your ministers come and teach us. Well, in the next 70 years, there is a very marked growth in the number of Baptist churches in Rhode Island. Uh, from 1706 to 1752, uh, 10 more churches were founded um, in Smithfield, Hopkins. Well, I'm not going to read all of the different towns, but several towns there in Rhode Island uh, where many more Baptist churches were founded. In 1764, there was a, a new church formed of members from the First Baptist Church of Providence, and it was established in Cranston, um, Rhode Island. Then, of course, the, the Great Awakenings come along. We talked about uh, George Whitfield, and he came to America during that First Great Awakening. Of course, he was not the only preacher of the First Great Awakening, but he's the only one that we talked about yet. Um, Second Great Awakening comes along, but Rhode Island here is the first colony that offers religious freedom to its inhabitants. It does not have a state church, but it is largely Baptist um, in the colony itself. I thought that would be interesting to talk about this morning, uh, about the, the colony of Rhode Island. Each of the colonies had their own flavor. Uh, you come to the southern colonies, colonies and it was less religious flavor and more business flavor uh, the further south you went. Uh, but those northern colonies were mostly uh, religious bastions. Some, though, turned into state churches. We'll talk more about that uh, when we come back next Sunday morning. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.